World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Japan, policies and attitudes that took hold after the Second World War have repercussions that still affect day-to-day life. This week, the government at last apologized to tens of thousands of people who were forcibly sterilized in a post-war eugenics push. Our correspondent talks to one of them. And the rebuilding of Japan after the war took on an almost military quality, as soldiers swapped uniforms for suits. That's made the country's work ethic famous, notorious even. As a new emperor ascends next week, Japanese employees are getting extra time off work to celebrate. But they're not all sure they want it. First up, though. In 2017, Spain's wealthy semi-autonomous region of Catalonia made a push for independence. In an unconstitutional referendum, it voted to break away from Spain. Madrid soon crushed the secession bid. But the Catalan issue was far from over. It helped to trigger this Sunday's general election, the third in little more than three years. Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez called the snap poll in February. Entre las dos opciones, no hacer nada y continuar sin presupuestos. After a crushing defeat in Parliament. O convocar y dar la palabra a los españoles, elijo la segunda. His minority socialist government had depended on support from small regional parties, including the Catalan nationalists. But they voted with Mr. Sanchez's right-wing opposition to reject his 2019 budget plan. His government was paralyzed. The coming election is supposed to break that impasse. But the political landscape remains fractured. The simmering Catalan crisis looms large still. And Europe is looking for a stabilizing force in uncertain times. Spain goes to the polls on Sunday the 28th, and it's a very important election because you have another European country that is plunged into real political crisis. Christopher Lockwood is our Europe editor. For the last year or so, Spain's been led by a government that only had 24% of parliament, so a very weak minority government. And the prospect after this election is you still won't have a majority. And we've seen this pattern happen quite a lot in Europe. In Germany, it took many months to form a coalition. Belgium has had terrible problems putting one together. Italy, the same. It's a growing problem, the fragmentation of political parties in Europe. And I think we're about to see on Sunday a nasty new case of it in Spain. So what do you expect the outcome of the election to be? Do you think Mr. Sanchez will be able to hold on to power? 
I think that the Socialist Party, which currently forms the minority government, will again emerge as the largest party, but it will be very well short of having a majority. And the real problem is that there are no viable paths to a stable coalition at the moment. And the reason for that is the political spectrum has fragmented with the entry of a couple of new parties. Until recently, Spain essentially had two big parties, a centre-left and a centre-right party. But what you've seen is the entry of a radical left party, Podemos, a party more or less in the centre called Ciudadanos, or the Citizens' Party, and now about to enter Parliament for the first time, a fairly far-right anti-migration party called Vox. And the problem is when you've got five chunky parties in Parliament, none of them can form a coalition very easily because none of them seem to want to work with each other. So the danger is that you'll end up having some very inconclusive coalition negotiations followed by another election. If you have another election this year, as many people are predicting, that will be the fourth election in four years. This is not a happy state of affairs. But as you say, Spanish politics has not always been this way. What's driven all this fragmentation? Well, a couple of things, I think. Clearly, one was the financial crisis followed by the Eurozone crisis. And this hit Spain very hard indeed. That led to a demand for new parties to come and solve the problem, if you like. But then the other thing that changed in Spain was the emergence of Catalonia and separatism there as a political issue. So it brought back onto the table the problem of nationalism in Spanish politics. This takes you all the way back to Franco, of course, early in the Spanish Civil War, one of the most bloody parts of it was precisely fought over Catalonia and the attempted secession there. And none of this has gone away. There has been a, a tension between Catalonia and the center for hundreds of years, but it had been hoped that it was sort of put to bed. Then that all changed with demands by Catalonia to have first an independence referendum and then actually to declare independence. Now, both of those things were not permitted under the current constitution, as a result of which the independence that they unilaterally declared was decreed illegal, was suppressed by direct rule from Madrid and the people who had promoted it put in jail. They're now being tried and nine of them face the prospect of extremely long jail sentences, which again bedevils the whole political atmosphere and also poisons relationships between a number of the established parties. And what about outside Spain? How much do you think this election matters in terms of European stability? Well, it will be interesting to see what happens with Vox. You know, if Vox gets taken into a coalition, I don't think this is very likely, by the way, but it could. If that happens, that will clearly send a lot of shivers down European spines because it will legitimate perhaps the taking into power of other right-wing parties. I think more likely is that Spain will just continue in this rather unfortunate period of political paralysis that it's going through. And I think that's bad for Europe in a different way. The reason is that Europe needs more strong countries. Traditionally, Europe was run by a sort of Franco-German axis. And one of the great strengths of having Britain in the EU is, is to a certain extent, a balancing third power between those two having something to say to both countries, to the Germans to be like Germany, an apostle of the free market and sound budgetary principles, but also to the French, preserving the importance of national foreign defense policies in particular, a certain sort of sovereigntist attitude towards the way that things were done in Europe. Now Britain's leaving the EU, or says it wants to leave the EU, and people would like to know, will there be another power to balance out the Franco-German axis? 
And Spain, sometimes suggested, could have been one of those. That seems very unlikely if it remains paralyzed. Italy can't be it, has terrible budgetary problems and now political problems. So I think that instability in Spain, you know, robs Europe of another potentially valuable additional actor. Chris, thanks very much for coming in. My pleasure. We went to meet a man called Saburo Kita. That's a pseudonym. He doesn't use his real name. Hi. Hi. I also had an interpreter with me. Hugo, if there's any question you don't want to ask, mm. you know, if you think it's too sensitive, mm. yeah. then just let me know, yeah? David McNeil writes for The Economist and is based in Tokyo. He's been to interview a man who's only recently chosen to reveal a long-held and painful secret. He lives in a tiny apartment in uh, West Tokyo, and that's where we went to see him. He's a thin, wiry man, looks much younger than his 75 years. And the apartment is, uh, is dominated by pictures of his wife of 40 years, who died uh, five years ago. In fact, the Uriah is drawn to um, a Buddhist altar in the sitting room when we sat down to talk to him. That's the altar to his wife. Kita-san was born in the mid-1940s in uh, Miyagi Prefecture up on Japan's east. Like many teenagers in the 1950s, he was a bit rebellious and he argued with his father, who was a uh, fishmonger, uh, and wanted his son to uh, follow him into the business. And uh, Kita-san told us he, he didn't want to. He would get into fights with local kids, and um, he ended up in a children's institution. And one day in the spring of 1957, when he was age 14, he was taken to hospital. I was taken to the gynecology department, and I was wondering, I'm male. Why am I here? The nurse made me lie on a bed. I had to take off my trousers. A needle was injected into my spine. I felt my mind going fuzzy. When I woke, I struggled to walk properly. Two weeks after the operation, I told a senior student what had happened, and he told me that means you are no longer able to have children. So what is it that had happened to Takita-san? Well, he didn't know it at the time, but uh, he was operated on, he was uh, sterilized. And that was carried out legally in Japan under what was called the Eugenic Protection Law, which was passed just after the war in 1948. Uh, the aim of the law was to, uh, and this is a quote, to prevent the vert of uh, what was called defective descendants. And the way it worked in practice was that all over Japan, in every prefecture, Local governments set up uh, review boards of the sort of the great and the good, I guess, you know, judges, police, doctors, and so on, to decide who should be sterilized. Many of them were people with disabilities, some with uh, hereditary conditions, such as epilepsy. But uh, what we now know is that in many cases, including the case of Kita-san, they were simply uh, difficult or rebellious children. But most of these sterilizations happened between the 1950s and 1970s. 
And in all, by the time the uh, law was repealed, which was 1996, about 25,000 people had been sterilized, uh, and the youngest was, was nine years old. I mean, how did this even get to be a government policy? You know, it's important to state, I guess, that Japan wasn't unique, particularly at this period, which is after the war. Eugenics flourished around the world in the 20th century. Sweden had a, a policy, uh, which they called ethnic hygiene, until 1976. Norway, Denmark had similar programs. There was uh, some sterilization programs in American states. So it was not quite worldwide, but it certainly, certainly Japan wasn't unique in this particular case. And so how did the, the sterilization impact Kita-san's life? Well, as you can imagine, it uh, made him angry. Uh, it cast a shadow over his whole life. Whenever I saw my wife carrying someone else's child, it made me want to look away. My wife's relatives would ask us, where are your children? Why have you not given us grandchildren yet? He uh, went to try to have the procedure reversed later when he was uh, when he was married, but he was told he couldn't. And uh, when he was married, he felt that he couldn't tell his wife. His wife wanted to have children, so he told her that his sterility was caused by a childhood illness, and that was the lie that he maintained throughout his married life, which, of course, was for 40 years. I kept it a secret from my wife, but right before she was about to die, I thought I should tell her. So two or three days before she passed away, I told her that when I was small, I'd gone through an operation that meant that I wouldn't be able to have children. I thought she might start criticizing me, but she just kept listening. She didn't ask me anything about the operation. She just said, take care of yourself, make sure you eat well. David, it's, it seems a very hard secret to keep for so long from someone you're so close to. Why is he speaking about this now? The way he explained it to us was that he learned about the case of another woman, also from Miyagi Prefecture, who uh, was suing the government very bravely. Uh, she came out, she's called Junko uh, Izuka, and he uh, realized that he was one of many people. Most of the victims, of course, they didn't know who they were, they didn't know if there were other people like them. So he re realized not only that he was one of many, but uh, that this was a government program, a government sterilization program. And what's the Japanese government response to, to this threat of, of lawsuits and the like? Well, of course, initially... They resisted, they blanked the people who were suing them when it became too large, I suppose, to ignore. Then they said that they had a line, they said that the, the sterilizations were legal, they were common elsewhere at the time, and that Japan was, at the time, uh, this law was enacted after the war in, in dire straits, struggling with rebuilding, and, uh, and, and that it, it was policy at the time, and they didn't necessarily support it, but that's the way it was. But this week, the government at last did something about it. Tell me about that. The government has, has announced it will pay the surviving victims uh, compensation, lump sum payments of uh, 3.2 million yen, uh, which is uh, not a lot of money. It's about 21,000 pounds, something like that, $28,000. Uh, and what they call a deep apology. Some people have saying that, you know, even though they don't want money, or they're not motivated by money, let's put it that way. Some people are saying that's an insult, given 
how much these people lost. And do you think Kitasan will be satisfied by the compensation settlement and the, this deep apology? Does it give him the closure he needs, do you think? Is Kitasan satisfied? Well, I think it's fair to say that he isn't. Uh, he thinks that, uh, first of all, the apology is uh, too vaguely word, worded. It uses uh, the pronoun wari-wari, which means we in Japanese, but it doesn't say who we is. Uh, is we the Japanese government? Uh, does it refer to uh, parliament? Does it refer to the prime minister? That's not clear from the language that's used in this apology. So I don't think that Kitasan is entirely happy, no. I want to tell the government, please give my life back because of the pain and sadness that I've gone through and the pain that my late wife had gone through. I think that if I had had a normal life, maybe I could have had a normal person's happiness. I think about that. David, thank you very much for your time. You're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Japanese workers are out of office. From Monday, employees have been given an extra-long holiday to mark the ascension of the new emperor. But not everyone seems enthusiastic about the break. There's going to be this long 10-day break in Japan. There's usually a break every year of Golden Week, which, as it says, is a week long. But it's going to be 10 days this year. Sarah Burke is The Economist's Tokyo bureau chief. So we, our research assistant, Miki Kobayashi and myself, have been speaking to people about it and reading the media and seeing what's being said. And, you know, some people are obviously very happy to have a lot of time off, but other people are less convinced. And there are lots of reasons for that. So, for example, one 54-year-old who heads an NGO said that basically he thinks people work too much in Japan, so a 10-day holiday is no bad thing. You know, he says he won't actually rest, but he thinks it's, it's quite good. And then Mickey spoke to a 25-year-old who works in sales, who said that he's also not opposed to the idea, but he's a bit worried that his area is a tourist destination and if lots of shops and restaurants close, then businesses will suffer. So some people, like him, think it's an excessive amount of time off. The Asahi Shimbun newspaper here did a poll of people and some 45% said they felt unhappy about the holiday compared to 35% who felt happy. So that's more people who sort of are worried about it than aren't. I mean, the worries seem to be things such as childcare and businesses being closed. So next week, for example, all the nurseries are closed, but people who work in the service industry are still working. I mean, it's a problem I have. My nursery for my daughter is closed and I'm working next week. So um, I, I understand the feelings about that one. Well, let's wind back a little bit. Um, how did this 10-day vacation, this extension to Golden Week, come about? 
So there's a bunch of holidays that are sort of together anyway, but it's been added to this week, this year, because of the fact that the emperor Akihito is abdicating and the new emperor Naruhito will take the throne. And so they've added more holidays together to celebrate all of this. And it's a big deal here. You know, emperors don't come and go that often. This one's been ruling for 30 years and he's actually the first person abdicating for over 200 years. So, you know, it's a it's a big deal. And yet not everyone is completely on, on board with taking the time off that, that's been allotted. And that plays very much into a, a stereotype we're familiar with about uh, Japanese people as workaholics. Why, why does that get played out so much? I mean, there's a truth to it, you know. There's a very different working culture here, especially historically and traditionally. I mean, you don't get very much holiday, maybe just 10 days a year when you start out. The average worker doesn't even take that. There's a lot of sort of social pressure to not take holiday. Japan also is one of the leading countries for paternity leave. So you can take up to a year here, but only 5% of men actually take advantage of it. And then it's only a few days, not a year. So people really do work very hard. It's measured really by hours, your, your success at work, rather than what your output is. So there's this whole sort of culture of work that makes holiday something that, you know, isn't a priority. You don't set out to take all your holiday allowance every year. And where did that culture of work come from? I mean, people pontificate about this, but, you know, after World War II, the country was destroyed and there really was this attitude of let's, you know, all work together to rebuild the country. And people did that. It became very successful. And so it was a motivation. Companies needed a lot of manpower. So they demanded that people work long hours, didn't take holidays. But in return, they gave people great wages, good rises, very good benefits, and also a guarantee that they'd have that job for life. And that model, the culture has remained. I mean, on the, on the face of it, if there is a workforce that is absolutely dedicated to working as much as they can and not taking their holiday and so on, that, that must be good for the economy, if not for the workers. Well, yeah, you say that, but actually it's not. You know, Japan has the lowest productivity in the G7. The diet actually has been trying to cap over time. So last year it passed legislation, partly because there's a lot of uh, karoshi, which is suicide through overwork here. So obviously it's it's not a good thing, not just for workers, but it doesn't lead to better output. But, you know, to really change these things, it's not going to be just a case of legislation or extra bank holidays. You need a broader cultural shift and lots of labour reform so that people can move jobs and get paid for performance and, you know, don't feel like they have to sit at their desks all day, every day until their boss leaves, even if they've got nothing to do. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. 
Find it wherever you get your podcasts.